Hi, I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Today, I'm talking to Meredith Noble about vulvar vestibulitis, which is pelvic pain or sometimes uh, vaginal or vulvar pain. Vulvar? Yeah, I guess that's what I just said. Sorry, friends. I'm doing bad at adjectives here. Anyway, vulvar vestibulitis, hypermobile spectrum disorder, and mast cell activation disorder. We also talk a lot about hope, how exhausting it is to get your hopes up all the time, and the pressure to find a solution to every body problem. Before we get started, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. So to get started, how was your health as a kid? I, when I think back, I was fairly healthy as a kid. I, I did struggle with ear infections a lot, like starting as a very young girl. Um, and they progressed to the point where when I was seven, they recommended I have a me. I never had to go as far as putting tubes in at that time, but I did have this surgery and it seemed to resolve things. But I always was told that I had lost half the hearing in my right ear. Okay. Um, so I always knew that was sort of just something I was dealing with mm-hmm. for years and years. And then, and then this, this always makes me think of this. If you had a lot of ear infections, had you taken a lot of antibiotics as a kid? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like amoxicillin was just like, yeah, like that banana bottle, (laughs) banana flavored bottle in the fridge was like almost constantly there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did take a lot of antibiotics and it didn't like that didn't um, connect for me as anything until like really only the last year. Yeah. And who can know? It's just one of those things that has been so much more in the like health and wellness news cycle that it, it's like, I think a lot of people start to pop and just wonder it's meaningless, but. Yeah. You know, <laughs> well, I mean, so like, I like not to like, you know, <laughs> like, uh, tell the whole story in two minutes, but like the, the condition I have now, people say that like Cipro mm-hmm. and some of those other meds like do potentially make it worse. So it's kind of one of those things looking back, like, huh, maybe yeah. who knows? Yeah. Who yeah. Question yeah. mark. Yeah. But so you had your tonsils out mm-hmm. and that and then- intriguingly helped. Yeah, I think it did. Like, I don't really have a great memory of that. Like, I wasn't, like, I continued to see my ear, nose, throat specialist all through childhood, but I don't remember there being, like, a lot more after that. Mm -hmm. And the next big incident was when I was 13, um, I developed an ulcer. Um, Like, I started getting really nauseous and sick to my stomach and, like, missed all this school. And um, that was back before they knew that H. pylori caused ulcers Mm. and so I was just put on antacids and stuff but like I think back and I'm like even now like I'm not sure how common it is for 13 year olds to get ulcers like yeah like I was very type a very conscientious like if I didn't get 100% in everything I was doing I failed kind of thing and I, I have to feel that like the stress I was putting myself under exacerbated that even if there was you know this bacteria the stress was was certainly a factor yeah yeah (laughs) I hear that yeah and as a 13 year old of course you don't know and without the modern internet where it's relatively easy to figure out if your peers are experiencing what you're experiencing yeah yeah I know I was definitely the only peer at the time (laughs) 
what is what is going on. I had a, a teacher that who was being really mean to me, and it was just like, it was just yeah, eating a hole in my heart at the time. So mm-hmm. um, and eventually ate a hole in my duodenum. So. Yeah, here you go. It did eat a hole <laughs> right through. Yeah, Oof. yeah, yeah. That sounds uncomfortable. And so ulcers, you just kind of have to wait them out, right? Yeah, I think I think I just took meds and just yeah. waited, and eventually it it passed, and you know, I didn't really think much more of it. It was just one of those like freak things that that happened, and I just yeah. moved on with life. Yeah, yeah. And the next big thing is when I was fifteen. That was when I first had vaginal pain. So I was. Um, I was with my very first boyfriend and we were kissing and out of the blue, I had this tearing, searing pain, um, right at the entrance to my vagina. Like we weren't touching anything. We were just kissing Mm -hmm. and suddenly I had this like excruciating pain that came out of nowhere. And it was, it was very scary. What is happening to my body? No kidding. Um, I, I don't remember much more about that day except like we like we stopped immediately and I was just like just what's happening deeply upset and and didn't know what was going on and that um that led to this multi-year process of figuring out what that was that it continued after that point mm-hmm. um I continued having pain um both with you know any kind of intimate activity um, as well as often with my period, you know, okay. when, um, when I was bleeding and it would irritate that area, I guess, or maybe hormonal things, I still don't really know mm-hmm. what the connection was there. And did, were they the same type of pain as far as you could tell? Like it felt yeah. like different triggers maybe for the same underlying yeah. issue. Yeah. 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 The best, um, description of the pain is like a paper cut that you put alcohol on. Like, yeah. In That's a very a vivid description. <laughs> yeah. In a very intimate part of your body. Um, yeah. And I, it was, it was a very emotional, like I, I started trying to find doctors who could help and no one knew what it was. Again, it was back before much was known about female pelvic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually I got a di- diagnosis of vulvar vestibulitis. And I was told at the time there were all of these, like, they wanted you to go on these diets, like a low oxalate diet. I still don't exactly know what an oxalate is. (laughs) This recently came up for me because, yeah, let me just share something private, not private, I guess, medical, medical and intimate with you, which is that I... I think I have um, interstitial cystitis, although I don't know for sure, but I keep testing positive for UTIs, even Mm -hmm. though I'm mostly asymptomatic. But I just talked to my doctor this week about how this time I tested positive for crystals in my Europe. In my Europe. Good, good. In my (laughs) Europe. It's okay. We're both brain foggy. Yeah, it's good. I just think that everyone listening understands. I tested positive. I also had crystals in my urine this time as a result of it and oxalates. And he was like... Yep, this can come from, for example, like dark leafy greens is one of the really common ones. And if you don't, in this circumstance where it's in the urine, it's like this is a precursor to kidney stones. So that part is less related to what you were talking about. But apparently, whatever it is, it's very present in dark leafy greens. So yeah, if that helps at all. Looking at the list of low oxalate foods and I'm like, oh, God. Where's my nutrition going to come from? 
it was like all across the spectrum of food. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like, oh, just cut out this one little thing. It was just like I was going to kind of have to cut out a million things. And I had heard things. I had heard that like the diet wasn't that effective. And yeah, I don't think I ever actually did it. I was just like, no, this is too hard. I can't do it. And was this and the only recommendation that you were getting at that time? They had. They also said, um, you know, s- start using like unscented or like very gentle laundry detergent because they felt like maybe it was like chemically induced through like your underwear things like that they said make sure to wear loose clothing um I mean I am one of the lucky ones because in a way because like I know a lot of women with this condition like they can't like they have the pain all the time Mm. or like riding a bike would cause pain or even just sitting in a chair having like you know tight tight pants on like just like pressure without something else going on yeah yeah and I thankfully never had that mine was more like with with sexual activity or like I said, my period. But, Mm -hmm. um, so like I did those things and like, it didn't do anything at the time. Yeah. Um, later on I was prescribed various medications and for a long time, none of them worked. I was just kind of bouncing from doctor to doctor to find someone who actually knew something about this. And the answer was like, there was no one who knew anything about it because it was so under-researched. Yeah. And I can imagine like, especially that that would be like as a teenager as your body is changing and your relationships are changing and your sexuality is evolving to have pain like fundamentally a part of all of those things would also be a lot of things incredibly frustrating and like disconcerting and not not what you're led to believe that your body should be up to by the media as a teenager right Yeah. yeah I think it was for me it was mostly fear that like the, I, as far as I knew at that time, I was heterosexual and I, and I was just like, I don't think like what kind of man would want to be with someone who, who has this condition. That was the dominant feeling that like no one was ever going to want to be my partner because, because I just had, you know, like yeah this major issue to deal with and navigate with. Like, yeah. why would they, why would they choose me when they could have someone who doesn't have any of that? That was the dominant feeling in my head. Yeah. And that, like, God, that message, that message is, like, giving me shivers because I feel like it is so, like, even just that, like, intercourse is the one kind of sex that everybody should be having. And if you can't be the exact right kind of partner, yeah, this is super heteronormative. But, like, when you're growing up, that's, those are the messages that you see of, like, yeah, you have, you have to have a body that will show up in this way because some of, if not most of your value comes from your ability to, like, do this and I know that sounds nuts that's not what I believe at all but like as a teenager or like as a however a like young person encountering all that it's so deep and I can only imagine that that would put way more pressure on yourself to want to try and find a solution to like at any cost (laughs) yeah yeah very much so I think I think that kicked off what has been basically like a lifetime of seeking for all of my um issues and and not just seeking, but like intense seeking, yeah. like, you know, okay, not this person, this person, and like, just like this constant stream of like, okay, th- let's, what's the next option I can try? Mm-hmm. Because yeah, I was compelled by the, this fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it also like, it wasn't like, like I said, like the very first time it happened, there was no touch at all. Mm-hmm. I was just presumably sexually aroused at the time. Yeah, like blood flow and probably. So, 
Yeah. And so like, it's not even like non-intercourse is helpful in that situation. Like if you're getting pain, even with any kind of, of sexual activity, which was, which has always been one of the most frustrating parts because that's kind of the go-to for doctor, like for sex therapists and doctors are like, well, you know, intercourse isn't everything. And I'm like, well, it hurts with any of it. So what you got for me? (laughs) Yeah. If arousal is the problem or like causing the problem and we're avoiding arousal, pretty much all of your suggestions that are meant to attack that issue are not going to help. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't find any stories of other people online who had the arousal aspect of it. Like I I was eventually able to find other people who had that, like similar kinds of pain with touch, Mm -hmm. but, but I don't remember ever reading a story with um with arousal and that's part of why I wanted to talk to you today I mean, yeah. there's other and thank you about, but like you yeah. know I just feel like it's so healing just to hear someone else talk about something that y- you are experiencing so I'm not very enthusiastically right yeah. now because I agree so wholeheartedly yeah yes um so so you're looking and seeing it sounds like lots of um, were you seeing like going from primary care to OBGYN to yeah. probably therapists are in the mix somewhere there, I would imagine? No. 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 That's interesting. Uh, very interesting, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I at the time, like I I remember being so embarrassed by it. Like yeah. my family was not one that like talked about these things very openly. Yeah. I remember like finding out my mom had told my grandparents about it and I was just mortified. And um, yeah. And it wasn't until like, I think I myself had a pretty heavy stigma against mental health care at, at that age. Like I was, I, I just, I, I don't even know how much of a stigma it was. I think it was just like a complete unfamiliarity with that as a resource. Yeah. And it had it nothing just like, to well, do with you. Yeah. Like that's maybe it's, it's so long ago. It's hard to remember. I think it was kind of like, well, that's if you have like, you know, certain conditions, but not a lot of awareness that that might be something that'd be helpful for what I was going through. And I think I was downplaying it too. I was just like, even though it was impacting, like, you know, I thought about it all the time, but I, um, I think I outwardly, I was like, Oh, you know, it's fine. Like, I don't, I don't think other people necessarily realize the degree to which it was impacting me. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it would be really hard to talk about. And also like, I mean, like anything, it would be hard to have any kind of point of comparison, but certainly to also go back into like weird things. I think that teenagers are told we're led to believe that sex should be painful. And so like, at least that first time. And so I'm, I would wonder if there's like some pain involved. You obviously, you know that it's not normal in quotes and you know that it's probably not that, but like that must've been in there. Like, okay, well I have to be able to put up with a little bit of pain anyway. So. Yeah. I don't know. Like I wasn't even having sex at the time. So I'm not even sure I necessarily went that far in my brain, but um, I knew it was not normal. And like that amount of pain was just like off the charts. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I think I just felt like there weren't resources available and I just had to like figure it out on my own. Yeah. Which, yeah, it was incredibly isolating. And I think it was all like my feelings of isolation were compounded by the fact that like I was a bigger girl at the time, you know, and still am. I'm even larger now. Like, you know, I was at the time I was like right at the cusp of straight sizes and plus sizes. And so I had this like additional, like, okay, I was like, I'm in pain and. 
I'm big and everyone wants skinny people and you know, that's like two strikes against me. Uh, mm-hmm. That was my, like my thought pattern right. at the time. So yeah, that's yeah, what's there. a lot of shame built up. Around yeah. All of that. yeah. I can see that. Um, so then if we keep kind of moving forward, I guess till either you learn something or, <laughs> you know, whatever yeah. happens next. Well, the interest. So the next thing that happened was. So I didn't find any answers for the pain. Next thing that happened was a doctor told me to lose weight. Okay. And, and how old were you at this point? I was like twenty six, I think, somewhere okay. twenty six, twenty seven. So it was after university. Um, and this was my primary care doctor. It was like, you need to lose like a ton of weight, just like, in general. Yeah. And she said, the only way that I know to do that is Weight Watchers, like which a way to do that healthfully is Weight Watchers. So I like the, you know, type A, like, type a, like achiever star pupils dutifully went off and found myself a Weight Watchers meeting. And I started like working out religiously. Like I would, I hired a trainer. I was at the gym like way longer and way more than I should have been. Plus, I was doing like the diet part of it, and I lost like, a, like the amount of like I went down to you know quote unquote a normal BMI at the time, mm-hmm. um, and then, um, then one day when I was at the gym, I was doing an exercise, and all of a sudden my back just spasmed or you know got really sore, um, and suddenly my back pain journey began, (laughs) Um, which now in retrospect, I can look back on and think like, huh, when you're losing weight, it's often muscle that you're losing. Like that's what, you know, you're losing. Yeah. Maybe your fat cells are shrinking, but also you're losing a ton of muscle. And so I think that the muscle that I had built up to like keep my body where it needed to be, um, was, wasting away like your stabilizer Um, muscles and whatnot exactly and so suddenly this back pain and hip pain started happening Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember going to my primary care doctor at the time and he's like okay well you know we know that most back pain disappears within I forget what it was like eight weeks or ten weeks or something so just wait just live with it it'll go away and then if it if it doesn't we'll talk about next steps and so I remember waiting and then I think I even waited a little longer because I was just like, I was like, well, am I allowed to go back and like, yeah, ask now? Like there was just like this kind of it's like he didn't sound worried. So I'm going to keep trying not to be worried until something else happens, maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And eventually I went back and he's like, OK, well, try physical therapy. And that that started off a multi-year process of um, physical therapy, uh, chiropractic, massage therapy, trying, you know, I was told like, well, back pain, you just need to strengthen your core. And like, I was doing all these things. I, I was um, a consultant in Toronto at the time. And uh, I remember being in our boardroom doing my PT exercises <laughs> because I was supposed to do them like four times a day or yeah. something. So that means I had to do it at work. So I remember like being in this fishbowl, like, you know, like with my, like laying on the ground and my legs up in the air, like doing all these things. Like, yeah. Again, trying to be so dutiful. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to do this and it's going to be fixed. Um, 
and uh, I didn't fix it. <laughs> Short answer. Yeah. yeah. Very frustrating. So PT, uh, not so much. And I, I have a feeling after everything you said that you were very diligent about following the plan that you were given. Yeah, I was. That's like that was the most compliant I've ever been. You know, yeah. I, I I checked off all the boxes. I did all the things. Um, eventually, they were like, "Well, it's not resolving. How about you have an MRI?" And I was in Canada, and back pain is not considered important, and so I had to wait six months for the MRI. Mm. Um, and in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Where there are more resources than anywhere else in Canada, right? but also more people. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I like waited the six months, kept doing all the PT. Nothing was resolved. With, like doing all this massage too, um, and had the MRI, and had my little talk with them at the end. Like went back in after you know I don't know however weeks later, and they were like. I have good news. The MRI didn't show anything. And, and I like just started weeping <laughs> because like, even though like maybe something that would have been on the MRI, like would have been bad in their eyes. Like I just wanted an answer. Yeah. And it was really hard not to, not to get that answer. Yeah, definitely. It's like what that, what that might've told you, like maybe it was ankylosing spondylitis. Maybe it was some kind of arthritis. Like, Sure, you don't want any of those diagnoses compared to being told, like, PT would have worked and you'll be fine again. Of course, you'd rather be fine again. But if it's a mystery pain or an explained pain, it's a very different, like, mental calculation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And meanwhile, I was also, at some point, I was like, oh, and maybe I should also be doing PT for the pelvic pain. Mm-hmm. So then I started seeing a massage therapist at one of the hospitals who specialized in pelvic pain massage. And I started seeing a pelvic pain PT, did that for a year, extremely diligently, no improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was like, that was, I don't even know how long that lasted. That lasted until I left Toronto, which was 2011. So like, yeah, that was a good five, six years of just like searching and searching and nothing helping. Yeah. Um, we moved to New York in 2011. And just after we moved, I started getting this like extreme hip pain. Like it would keep me up. Like I could barely sleep. Um, and I was brand new to the States and didn't even know if I was going to be able to get insurance because all I knew was that they wouldn't cover pre-existing conditions. And I, I remember being on the phone with the insurance company in this tiny little room at my new office, like bawling to them being like, I'm really like, are you guys going to pay for any of the treatment I need? Like, is this considered a pre-existing condition? And I was like, I was like, yeah, weeping on the phone. Later, I found out the room I was in was not soundproof. Oh, God. <laughs> and that the vent into the open concept office came right out of that room. <laughs> it was really, really um, mortifying. Yeah, just like um, a fun extra to a terrible yeah. situation. Gosh. Yeah. Um. And where were you? I just want to ask more insurance questions because I think it's interesting. So you did you have coverage through your work? Mm-hmm. So you had a job that, yeah, that had insurance and you were trying to figure out what what services they would actually cover. And this was your first time in the States 
at yeah. all? So you're okay. So your first time off of OHIP, if you're from Ontario, like yeah. off. Okay. Yeah. And then what was yeah. my other question about it? Right. And 2011. So that's before Obamacare, right? Correct. I yeah, think so, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Um, I 2011 is when I moved to Canada, actually. So I'm like, yeah, we're <laughs> inverted here. Yeah. So I didn't have to yeah. think about American healthcare again until last year. Um, but okay, so just to get those fun details covered. Yeah, so, okay. it was so foreign at the time. Like I had to learn like all this language. Like, yeah. what's a copay? What's coinsurance? Like, I just couldn't make heads or tails of it. And even like googling, I was just like, I don't understand what any of this is. It's super overwhelming. Picking a plan <laughs> also on the marketplace when you pay for your own plan, you're like, I don't. What is any of this about? How do I prioritize? I understand what I pay per month, and that's practically yeah. it. Almost still, yeah. which was maybe embarrassing, but okay. So you're trying to figure out what yeah. they'll cover because you have this new pain in addition to your existing pain. Yeah. And the new pain is so bad that like my work is suffering. Mm-hmm. Like my husband was afraid that I was going to lose my job because like I was, I was just at wit's end and was barely functional because I was in so much pain and and because I couldn't sleep because of the pain and like all the new, like I, I just started with a new, like at a new doctor's practice and here I am saying like, and what do I do about the pain? And they like, I'm sure all of their red flags went up about like drug seeker, all these things. Eventually yeah. the, the guy I saw, I was like, well, I can give you some Vicodin. Vicodin didn't help. Yeah, it would last like maybe two, two, three, four hours, and then I would wake up again. But mm-hmm. I'm glad that like at least he was willing to like you know give me the benefit of the doubt because I right. feel like I have seriously. a lot of a lot of privileges that probably enabled me to be taken more seriously mm-hmm. in that context than others. Yeah, um, yeah. I saw all these specialized people there. No one knew what it was. Eventually, they found out I had a labral tear in one of my hips, and then just. When I was considering having surgery for it, and one day the pain just magically went away. <laughs> and I was like, what just happened? Like you just woke up one morning and walking was kind of fine again? Yeah. 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 And I, I, like, I, didn't, I didn't have any way to explain it until like a lot years later, a physical therapist was like, it's possible that the ligament just fully detached that it was hanging on and pulling mm-hmm. and that eventually it just fully detached and that relieved the pain. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, maybe, yeah. Sure. Still don't know. Yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was better, better than the alternative. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Wow. So, but the back pain persisted and hip pain persisted, just not that like super acute, like um, pain. And yeah, I continued like trying to do PT and all this and, um, I'm just spending like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars, right? Like I look back on like thousands of dollars being spent on this. Like, yeah. um, eventually nothing had worked and I, my, my doctor was like, you know, there's this, there's this guy I work with. He's in the next office on this floor. He's this advanced physical therapist and he doesn't take insurance, but I really think you would benefit from seeing him. Um, and at the time, I was just like, "What? N- not pay for something through my insurance? Like, I can't, I can't do that. Like, the concept. I was just like, no, like, I can't. Yeah. Um, the concept was foreign. And I went down. 
instead of doing that, I went down this whole other road of like trying to get like um, trigger point shots and cortisone shots and all these things. And eventually this like pain management person said like, well, none of these shots have worked. I think it's time for surgery. Um, and so I actually had, I had surgery on my L4, L5, uh, vertebrae. Um, it's called a microdiscectomy. So like they, they were like, well, you have a bulging disc, so we'll just remove the disc and maybe that'll solve your problem. And, and does it, it didn't. It didn't. <laughs> okay. okay. It didn't. Yeah. <laughs> did it make, what did it change or did it change anything? Nothing. Nothing. No difference. Nothing. For like the first month, I was like, oh, maybe I feel better. And then it all came back. And I still don't know, like, was that placebo at the time? Was that, I don't know, like endorphin? I have no idea. Yeah. But I felt that for a very short while, but then it all came back. And I was just like, oh, my God. I read, now I can't remember what book it is. I'll find out what book it is and tell people in the intro or outro of this episode. But it's just like a sociology book about human behavior and stuff. But one part of it specifically was about surgeries and how, like, the process by which we discover that some surgeries are not actually helpful and it's just the placebo effect making them seem helpful. And like, I'm okay. I'm not a medicine conspiracy theorist in general. Hopefully people (laughs) know like where I am on this line by now, but it was really interesting because it was like, we do a lot of unnecessary surgeries that we don't know are unnecessary because the doctors want to help and it makes sense logically. And some people feel better because they have been operated upon, but it might not actually have to do with the mechanism. Yeah. I'll find that reference for yeah. everybody later. It was interesting. <laughs> hey, it's future Brianne here. Just popping in to say that the book that I was talking about is called Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. Anyway, back to the conversation. And I think now I've realized like when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I yeah. realize now that like surgeons, like it's pretty rare for a surgeon to say that surgery won't <laughs> In yeah. some way. And I wish I'd had that perspective at the time. Yeah. Um, because it was like it was expensive. It was also like my employer was so kind and gave me like weeks off work and like they were a small company and like I just felt so guilty afterwards of like mm-hmm. they gave me all this assistance and it didn't even help in the end. Um Yeah. Which you obviously could have known could not have known, but that's not how feelings work. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah, so I was like utterly dejected. By this point, somewhere somewhere along the way I did get a therapist. And so like I don't know how that happened, but like I did have some support through all of this. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting to the point where like I was afraid to hope anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can relate to that, but like it was just like one treatment after the next. I was like, okay, well, then this, then this, then this. Um and it got to the point where, like, I couldn't get my hopes up because they'd just been dashed so many times. And it just hurt so much more to get my hopes up about something and then and then not have it come to fruition, the pos- positive change come to fruition, that I ended up kind of, like, kind of regulating my emotions to just, like, not get excited about not, – or not get hopeful about any of the new things I was discovering. Mm-hmm. Yes. I relate to that very strongly. I've been thinking about hope a lot lately, which is a the full rant I won't go on right now. But even like as you're talking about it, what it, what it's making me think about is how like 
when you have that kind of type A brain, because I also am a big planner, it's like, I'll think about, okay, here's the thing that I'm going to try next. And then here's the thing that I'm going to try after that. If this, the first thing doesn't work, if thing A doesn't work, here's what thing B will be. And then maybe here's what I'll explore for thing C. And it can also happen that like, because you're just trying to make sense out of it, it makes it a lot harder to even evaluate the efficacy of thing A almost because you're like trying to stabilize like you're describing and trying to plan so that you have something in the future if this thing doesn't work. But like staying in the moment with it is very difficult, I will say, which I think is an understatement. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I relate to that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And also like, at a certain point, like I was going to physical therapy was very much going through the motions and it wasn't like when I talked before about like being so diligent at the beginning, like it got to the point where I like I was barely doing any of it. Yeah. You're like, this and, isn't the thing. I should be doing it. Yeah. I don't think it's the thing. Yeah. And so like I started getting this additional guilt of like I should be doing it. I'm non-compliant as they say. Like yep. what if my physical therapist knew that I wasn't doing these things? Like just all sorts of just like getting down on myself yeah. about all of it. Yeah. Um, so after the surgery, then I was like, okay, well, maybe I should give that advanced guy a try I think my doctor was like I really think you should try this guy and I was like okay I'll do it um and he after a few sessions of working with me he was like oh I see people like you all the time you have you have lax ligaments and I was like what are you talking about (laughs) no one has ever had a word for what this is and I was just like what do you mean like he was very lackadaisical about it he was yeah. like oh you have lax ligaments like Real all the lady casual. before you had lax ligaments too and I'm like what <laughs> can I talk to her <laughs> <laughs> um and uh that at least gave me something to google right because up until this point I was just like back pain hip pain like I didn't have anything to hold on to yeah, which are so general of course yeah I'd even gone through, I, I kind of forgot, but I'd gone through this whole like mind body thing. Like I did like this coach training that was supposed to be for pelvic pain and also for other types of pain that was based on the work of John Sarno and this idea that like you can, like you can heal your pain through mind body techniques basically. Mm-hmm. So like I, I'd gone through, yeah, all, like, all of this. And because, like, I'd gone through that because I was like, clearly there's no physical explanation for my pain. In all the years that I've searched, both for the vaginal pain and the back and the hip pain, no one has any explanation. So clearly, like, it must be, you know, this mind-body thing that I can deal with on my own. Mm-hmm. And then to finally have a name for something actual physical going on in my body was just, like, mind-blowing. Like what? Yeah. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. What he didn't have the term for at the time was Ehlers-Danlos. And so it took several more years for me to to put the puzzle pieces in place yeah. for that. Yeah, that's interesting. Like lax ligaments, which, okay, connective tissue disorder as we, uh-huh. when you know, when you find out that that's what Ehlers-Danlos is. Yeah. But I feel like it's one of those things that's like a word that is becoming much more I hear it much more, and I don't know if that's, like, my own content bias. It certainly is partially that, but I wonder if 
it is also resulting in more like primary care doctors and stuff becoming aware of it because to see a PT who has a word and like recognizes what you're going through and doesn't know about this genetic condition would be also interesting when you find out the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so with that ID, what were, what was there to do about it according to him? What he, like he did a ton of manual stuff on me. And so he was constantly like my issue. One of my main issues was that my sacrum was twisting and turning and like your sacrum is barely supposed to move, but he's like, yours is constantly tilting and twisting. And so he would put it back into place. And then I would get like a few days of relief. Mm. Similarly, my hip was going off the back of the socket. And so he would like do things to, Mm -hmm. he gave me like techniques to like pull it back into place. Mm -hmm. Um, So he gave me exercises to strengthen. He gave me exercises to just like kind of, stop now what I see is like subluxing yeah um he did manual stuff to help me get it back to where it needed to be and then eventually when that on its own didn't like create long-term change he suggested PRP injections otherwise known as platelet-rich plasma injections okay so they take your blood they spin it and they take part of the plasma that's rich in platelets and they inject it into your ligaments um it's also done with saline and I think sometimes they do it with like saline and like sand or something. And the idea is that they inject it into your ligaments and because ligaments don't repair on their own. Like they, like if you tear a ligament, it's torn. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you put, if you put these injections, it creates, I don't know if it's creating inflammation. I think it might be inflammation. Like it creates like a little bit of trauma along the ligament and it somehow stimulates it to strengthen in some way. That's interesting. Like invites your body to pay attention to this spot. Definitely yeah. not a medical explanation, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But basically, right? Yeah. Like I don't, I don't exactly know how it works, but not covered by insurance. Thousands of dollars. Like yeah. thousands. Um, and I, again, I was just like, well... I've got nothing else. I have the means. Like I've got this New York job. I've got, you know, enough money to just try this. Right. And I I don't even remember how many rounds of it I had, like two or three rounds. And I actually started feeling better for the first time. Yeah. And you're like, okay, now I have a different set of choices to make with this uncovered expensive thing that does appear to be improving my quality of life. Well, the interesting thing about PRP is that it is said to be permanent. And so at the time I was like, oh, like maybe that's it. Like maybe like this a, is the last time I'll have to do it. Short term thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it's like it's created this like stronger ligament and that's supposed to be the end of it. So at one point he he said to me, he's like, you know, I think like you can keep coming for tune-ups and stuff, but I think you're pretty good. Why don't I transition you over to this personal trainer friend of mine who's also a physical therapist? You can continue like strengthening yourself um, and he can keep you safe because he has that um, physical therapy background. Yeah. Um, And so I transitioned to this other guy and the next thing I knew I was like doing really serious weightlifting and I was out of pain. And the interesting thing was not just back pain, but also pelvic pain. That's really interesting. Yes. Attributed to, you think, to the exercise slash whatever? 
now I look back on it at the time I was just like, well, it's because I'm not slipping in and out. Like my joints are staying put Mm -hmm. and they're stable and I've created these muscles around them that are stabilizing them. Yeah. That's improving everything. Um, Yeah. And up to that point, I kept asking people, I was like, do you think this pelvic pain and this back pain is related? And most people were like, maybe, but I doubt it. And then suddenly this one thing I did fixed both of them. Yeah. Um, So that was new information. Like, okay, these are linked in some way. Yeah. Um, So I did that for like a year and a half. I started lifting like really heavy. At one point I went back to my physical therapist and he's like, oh, I didn't quite mean for you to lift that heavy. (laughs) But I just kept getting better and better. And so like. And it felt okay putting more weight in front of me and I just kept lifting it. Um, but at one point I was like, this isn't really what I wanted. Like, yeah, I'm not a weightlifter. Like <laughs> it's not satisfying so, or whatever yeah. it is that get, like people who are into it are into. Yeah. Yeah. And I had been, I had discovered this new philosophy to me called health at every size, which is now what I practice in my work. Yeah. And part, a very key part of it is joyful movement. And the idea of like, having a movement practice that is sustainable because it's enjoyable to you. And so I was like, do I actually enjoy this? And so I felt like I wanted to step away um, and see whether I missed it. Mm-hmm. And so plus my, my trainer wasn't into health at every size at all. And he was really expensive. So I was just like, I'm just going to like put the pause on that step away. Yeah. Um, and then over a period of a year after that, I, the pain came back. Okay. So a year after you stopped lifting. Which... Yeah. Like within the next like six, eight, 12 months, somewhere okay. in there. Yeah. yeah. Which... The pain came back. Who knows? Yeah. So I went back to my physical therapist and he's, he started like repeating the whole process again, manual therapy. He's like, why don't you get another round of PRP? That PRP I didn't respond to. I did like a couple rounds and I didn't respond okay. to it for some reason. Okay. So it was like I had just gone back to where I was before. I had this like year, year and a half of like beautiful pain-free experience. Yeah. And then I was back to to where I was before with a tremendous amount of guilt of like if I just hadn't stopped that. Yeah. I'd be okay now. And now now I can't get back to there. Like there's something blocking my way that I can't even like replicate the process. Yeah. That, oh my God. The like wanting to be able to replicate something that made you feel good. Like I realize how superstitious I become about anything, about exercise routines, about food routines, about sleep routines. Like when I get into even a shorter rhythm, I can't imagine with a year. It's like if I have a good week straight, be like, Oh my God, how did that happen? Like, what do I have to do exactly the same every day for the rest of my life? And or what did I stop doing that I need to feel terrible about stopping doing to support my body? Like, (laughs) I relate. Yeah. Yeah. Right now I'm like, how do I replicate last week? I felt so good last week. Yeah. There's so many variables, right? Like I'm telling this story that's related to pain and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of variables, but the story gets more complicated as we go on. And I'm sure that most people listening know know exactly what you mean. 
And like anybody who's experienced a period of remission and then it sneaks back in and you're like, what did I do? Yeah. And the answer might be nothing. Like you might not have done anything. It's completely unknowable. And that's infuriating. But our society teaches us that it is knowable or that it should be knowable if only you try hard enough. I think that's what I've realized in the last year or so, like yeah. recognizing like these neoliberal themes of, that were taught of just like, if you, if you, you should be able to work hard enough to fix yeah. this. If, if you didn't work hard enough, it's your fault. Yeah. Uh, if something happens, it's because you didn't work hard enough, like all those things. Yeah. And, yeah. It's really hard to step away from that value system when we're living in it every day. Yeah. It's all mixed up in there. Yeah. 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 So. So. Um, what happened next? Um, alongside all this, I should say, I'm also dealing with what I identify as allergies. So, like, I was, I started seeing an allergist when I lived in New York. And I remember going back for, like, the second or third appointment. And he was looking for my file. And he was like, Oh, right. You're the one who's allergic to everything. And at that point, like, I didn't identify that way at all. I was just like, oh, I have some allergies. And Mm -hmm. so it was really interesting to have that experience of him being like, oh, you're the one with, like, the allergies off the chart. Okay. Yeah, like, Um, your body or your reaction here is noteworthy. Yeah, but, but like, there was nothing else said about it. And there was Mm -hmm. certainly not – the word mast cell was never mentioned – but I was put on some meds. Yeah. You were about to say something. I, yeah, I was. And I had water in my mouth. I was just going to say, <laughs> when was this in time? Because I didn't realize how recently, like, mast cell, MCAT, and MCAS actually just even became terms. Like, they're super yeah. new. Yeah. It was probably, I feel like it was midway through my time in New York. So that would have been, like, maybe 2014-ish. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's before, like, mast cell activation disorder was formally... Yeah. I don't know if identified is probably the wrong word, but given a name. I feel like I saw a talk the other day that said it had had a name for like eight, nine, ten years or something. But like just because it has a name in some like obscure literature that super right. specialists read doesn't mean that it's gotten out to the masses. Yeah. So I feel like that was definitely the case with my guy. Like I bet he didn't even know about it. Yeah. Um. So I just was like, okay, well, I just have to take allergy meds all the time. Whatever. I'll do that. Lots of people do. I- Mm-hmm. I had like a chronic cough. I had dermatographia, like, um, I, yeah, just rhinitis, like just stuffy nose all the time. And I was like, okay, I have allergies, whatever mm-hmm. went on with my life. Um, around the same time I developed like excessive sweating too. Like I was on a, a psych med, um, an antidepressant and I, I all of a sudden like I just started like sweating profusely um and that was not a good combination with like the New York subway system in July <laughs> let me tell you yeah that that city has some humidity <laughs> yeah it was pretty brutal and embarrassing like super embarrassing yeah. but now I'm able to look back on that and be like that was probably an early pot symptom that yeah. the medicine was exacerbating but I had no concept of any of this at the time um so um the next thing that happened was I moved to Portland Oregon where I live now and I 
um, found a guy who had similar training to the guy that I had been so helpful to me in New York. Mm-hmm. And I saw him a couple times and he was basically like, eh, I don't know what to do with you. And I, I was just kind of, I was confused. I was like, I thought you would be helpful. We would spend our sessions and he would just like put his hand under my sacrum and just sit there for like 30 minutes, which is like some kind of osteopathic technique. But sure. I was like, I think this doesn't feel like what you need. What I wanted, yeah. but he, then, but he was like, but there's this physical therapist in town who specializes in Ehlers-Danlos. That was the first time I'd heard Ehlers-Danlos. And I was like, do you think I have that? Yeah, what does like, that have to do with me? You, yeah, why, why are you telling me about this person? So it was kind of like this implicit, like, you have EDS yeah. kind of thing. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll go see this person. She had a huge waiting list, but she happened to have a cancellation. And I got in to see her once. And he, and she just, like, all of a sudden, everything started clicking into place in a way that, like, ligamentous laxity hadn't before. Right. Um, and I have seen this, this person ever since. She has it herself, mm. which is just, like, amazingly good. Like, to have a provider who has lived it. Um, yeah. and she's basically become like over the last, I've been here about a year and a half. She's basically, she's kind of become my like EDS coach. Mm-hmm. Um, like we spend half of our PT sessions just talking about like living with this. Yeah. Um, she has referred me to, to like a specialist in town who actually knows how to treat this. That person, um, she thought that I didn't have formal EDS, but that I have hypermobile spectrum disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the running that's diagnosis. Where you are right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and for that, so with hypermobility in general, so either the heads or the hypermobile, hi, okay. hypermobile <laughs> spectrum disorder, words that I see written all the time and can't say right now for some reason. You could say if that's easier. <laughs> yeah. This is like an observational diagnosis, right? A clinical diagnosis based on your level of hypermobility. Is that right? Yeah. So there's this evaluation they do called the Baton score, which I think is out of nine. Um, and so they, they, I kind of hate it to be perfectly honest. Cause like they, um, they look for like, can you touch your thumb to your, um, to your arm and like to your elbows hyperextend, your knees hyperextend. But like, there's they don't like it's just like this very limited subset of joints mm-hmm. like I have hypermobility in my hip but they don't include that I have hypermobility in my sacrum but they don't include that so it feels a bit arbitrary that they include certain joints over others so I think I, I, think I got like five out of nine or something mm-hmm. why I get the like yeah. hypermobile spectrum disorder instead of hypermobile EDS mm-hmm. but what the literature says is like just because you you know, you have one over the other doesn't mean that the symptoms are any less severe or you know, like, it doesn't say anything about the severity of symptoms. You can have heads. I don't know. Do people say it? H-E-G-O? I don't know. I don't know. I just did, but I don't um, actually yeah. know that I've, I see it written so often that I've started doing it in <laughs> yeah. my head. Maybe people say it. <laughs> Feels a little weird. Um, but people with that can have no symptoms or they can have like completely debilitating symptoms. And the same is true for hypermobile spectrum mm-hmm. disorder, which I think feels a bit better to those of us with hypermobile spectrum disorder. Cause when you first get it and it's yeah. kind of portrays like this lesser than, and right. then it can, can be like invalidating to yeah. one's own. 
experience. Like the implication is that it's better to have, it's easier to live with than EDS somehow or something. And that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Or that your pain isn't as bad like necessarily when it Mm -hmm. could be anywhere. It could be nothing to very severe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was really helpful just to get that word for it because it all of a sudden it unlocked, like I could find Facebook groups where people are talking about this stuff. I could find websites. Like I just didn't have anything to search for the longest time. Yeah. Um, which was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. And so what kind of, I guess, tell me if there's more coming, but what kind of like treatment options or protocols does that unlock? Is there more, did you do more or different things than PT or was PT still kind of the best? It's been, um, well, before I go into that, maybe I should mention alongside this, there was that suspected mast cell activation disorder. Um, so there was that going on. Um, so the treatments I was offered, uh, pharmaceuticals. So I was put on a couple, like they kept, I'm already on like all these, um, antihistamines for what I thought were allergies. Mm-hmm. Um, like over the counter or like prescription? Um, a mixture. Yeah. So like singular or Montelukast is like the one that like, I can't live without. Kind of. Um, so I think you can get that over the counter, but I get it through mm-hmm. the pharmacy. Um, but then there's also this class of drugs that's called mast cell stabilizers. And so I got put on um, one of those called catadofen, which I have to get specially compounded. But the interesting thing was once I started taking that, I actually f- noticed that my body pain started decreasing. So like it was ho- like even like it hasn't really helped that much with like what I would traditionally think of as mast cell symptoms. Like um, GI stuff and allergies and itching and stuff hasn't helped as much with that, but actually like, I feel like I need to go to the physical therapist for tune-ups less often because my body is, isn't in as much pain. Mm-hmm. Kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah, that is interesting. And I, mean, I feel like MCAD slash MCAS, but mast cell problems we'll say yeah. are really interesting because, because it's so new. It's like the kind of symptom clusters are very, are very, very varied and it's really commonly comorbid with eds i believe mm-hmm. and so i'm sure there's like it is hard to figure out kind of what issue or what system to attribute different symptoms to if that makes sense it's so complicated yes you're absolutely right like it's so complicated because i started getting gi issues um you know three or four years ago things got really bad and i ended up having to go see a gastroenterologist and um like I, I had no concept that those could be mast cell related, you know, but re- when you have like all of these disorders, like now I also have this additional diagnosis of like suspected hyperandrogenergic POTS. So like, it's all of these like, like very systemic issues and it's hard to, it's hard to figure out like suddenly there's so many variables at play, mm-hmm. which makes it really hard to experiment and kind of figure out like or even to form a mental model of what's going on, you know, like for yeah. me, like I'm a very, like, I'm an engineer by training. Like I like to like think about like, okay, this is causing this, which is causing that, but it's taken so much labor to have any approximation of a mental model of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. <laughs> which, which is hard because even doctors don't have one, you know, like I've heard, I've heard that it could be, the hypermobile EDS that's leading to the mast cell, or it could be the mast cell that's actually, you know, leading to the hypermobile EDS. Like people, it's, it's hard when even the doctors don't have any answers. Yeah. 
yeah, there's like no patho- no known pathology for any of those things right now for POTS or yeah. MCAS or EDS, right? Yeah. And some some of the types of Ehlers-Danlos, there are genetic tests for, but even like being able to identify a gene by itself is still not a pathology. I would not I would not say. Um, right. What do you do that with that information? Like, you yeah. know, you're like, cool. Thanks. There's gene therapy for it in some way, but yeah. 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 And hypermobile EDS is the one that doesn't have any genetic testing available. Right. Right. So does that bring us more or less up to the present on a diagnostic yeah. level? More or less. So like basically what happened was last year I started getting like really debilitating fatigue and brain fog. Okay. And so those were new. Those were new. I'd never had that. And so I'm a, I'm a coach and, uh, I ended up like basically spending all day in bed and just waking up like 10 minutes before I see a client and then going back to bed for like a, a couple of months. And then it cleared up. On its and own. Then, oh, yeah. Apparently on its own. Yeah. And then it came back, um, late November, I got a headache um, headaches slash migraines have been throughout this whole story too, but I got this headache and it lasted for two months straight. Um, <sighs> and then along with it came brain fog, dizziness. Um, I ended up giving myself a concussion by falling down stairs in the middle of it. It was just like a total nightmare. Yeah. Um, and that was what eventually all of this has led to the suspected hyperandrogenic POTS. So that more or less brings us up to to current because I, I was supposed to have a tilt table test a couple of weeks ago and they told me to go off every, like basically all of my antihistamines, my sleep med, my antidepressant. Um, and I got so profoundly ill that I couldn't take the test. So how I been able to verify. How early do you have to go off of your meds for, for a tilt table test? Two to three days. Okay, so long enough for it to really start to accumulate. Yeah, it was. I I expected to be like itchy all over, and for the dermatographia to just go off the charts. I expected kind of the skin reactions, but what I didn't expect was um, the extreme gastrointestinal distress. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, digestion was not happy. No, like violent vomiting, and yeah, just really, really nasty really stuff. Yeah. And no one available to help yeah. or support. And they were just like, no, well, you just can't be on any of the meds. So, like, that's it. Shrug Live with shoulders. it or cancel the test. Thanks. Yeah. 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 That's frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. To the extent that a tilt table test is helpful. I mean, <laughs> which is also. Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a question. Do I really? I, I'm seeing my doctor tomorrow and I'm going to ask, like, do we really have to like what is that going to give me exactly like I'm not keen to go through that misery again yeah well that's such an added factor I know for me when I I was at a doctor and discovered that I was experiencing pot symptoms he had done the just like lazy test so lie down on the table and then on like a normal exam table so lie down and then sit up and then stand up yeah and yeah at the time mine was I think the worst that it's ever been like my heart rate immediately went up to like 190 when I was standing and he was just, and it does not do that now. Fortunately, it was a tough time. But he was like, okay, well, it depends on your goal, obviously, because a formal diagnosis is helpful. He was like, in your case, I think it is a, a side, like a side effect of this other stuff that's going on. It was when I was in my moldy house is why. He's like, I think this is mm. this bad because of the mold. I think when we clear up the mold, this will 
not be as much of an issue if it remains an issue. Obviously, diagnostics are important in order to qualify for other things. But he was like, to be honest, if you don't need it, don't do it. It is what I've heard from people is that it is so awful (laughs) just like being on the tilt table and slowly. I'm like, I don't know if you can see my hand. Gradually (laughs) being like just tortured and you can't relieve yourself. I've heard that the test itself makes people ill for days, let alone like what I had to do for this prep. Yeah. 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 And that was, and that was for me, like at a time when I was not on any medication. So it was only just like, well, being upright is awful. So you'll hate it. And I can't imagine when you're like, before I even did the test, I feel so sick. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it was, it was really brutal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think like the hardest part of this last six months has just been not knowing what the source of any of this was like, why, why November? Right. You know, I've had this ongoing question of like, we just moved to a new house. Is there mold in the house? Right. I don't know. Is there, um, we're living in Portland there, like, it's a very wet winter. There's moldy leaves everywhere. Is that what, like, is it a, like environmental? Yeah. Like, um, is there, is it something I'm eating? Like, it's just, the the hunt for like what the actual thing is that's causing it Mm -hmm. is is exhausting yeah yeah that's very fair and the amount of work that you have to do to rule stuff out or try to rule stuff out like using mold as the example and it's something that i know about it's like Mm -hmm. okay well you can get your house tested for mold but certain people say that those tests are unreliable so maybe you'll get a false negative and then Maybe you'll discover that there is mold and then people will tell you that you have to like burn your house down with all of your belongings <laughs> in it and move to the desert forever. Like, <laughs> you're like, right. is that better? Is that better than what's going on right now? I'm not sure. Like, mm-hmm. and that's Literally. one avenue. One avenue mm-hmm. requires just like a whole lot of uncertainty and a very big commitment to figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you mix in the other obvious obvious like possible triggers like diet because you just mentioned that as it's something that I'm eating and I'm sure when you're also like looking at MCAS and I guess less POTS I feel like I don't see a lot of dietary interventions for dysautonomia by themselves I don't think like other than electrolytes and sodium you know drink a lot of water help your blood volume yeah I think you're right but like MCAS is like they'll recommend a low histamine diet if that's helpful for you. Yeah. Um, and then they'll also recommend a low FODMAP diet. Right. And there's the whole like SIBO variable. Like, do you have SIBO? Do you have leaky gut? Do you have yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How's your gut bacteria? Um, yeah. Okay. So then, and so that's since November that it's been, we'll say more stormy, like just more happening. Yeah. 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 Um, and so then my question is, is like in the middle of all of this, both since November and then maybe like since you were 15 on both timelines <laughs> to, you know, to think about it in the widest possible lens. Um, what kinds of things have you tried? I know you've mentioned a lot of them, but like what have you tried that has been a ridiculous amount of energy and completely unsuccessful? And what have you tried that has helped and that you still do? Like, you know, yeah. like, there's so much junk out there. Yeah, there's a lot of junk out there. Um to me, the most helpful part, honestly, has been having someone to help me navigate through all of this. And I remember, like, I've, I've been wondering, like, is there, 
are there people out there I can hire to like help me navigate? Like I've heard about like nurses who do that, but I haven't like really connected with any of those resources. Like I, I really don't know what I would have done if my physical therapist didn't also become kind of my de facto coach around it. Yeah. It's like just, just honestly her validating what I was going through and her being further along in the process and saying like, she was just able to be so reassuring. Like the other day she told me, she's like, I feel like I have a MCAS bucket. And so it's not that I can't ever eat gluten, but I might eat a tiny bit and that will partially fill up my, my bucket. And if I have more, it might overflow. But I, I you know, like it just like yeah. little concepts like that, that I never w- would have had again, just like any, any awareness of has been the most most helpful thing um, and I, even if physical therapy hasn't been like I've gotten to the point where it's very hard for me to do physical therapy exercises because I just resent it so much and I haven't I haven't unlocked the magical like motivation that I had at the very very beginning like however many years ago that was that's also like but, a hope fatigue thing I think just mm-hmm. as a note of like the yeah. first time that you're exposed to something you're like this is the answer I'll do it and then the fifth yeah. time you're like I don't know, man. <laughs> and and fatigue, like just general fatigue, you yeah. know? Like I've just been feeling crappy and like the idea, even though in my head I know that like movement should help with like the POTS and all that stuff and reduce inflammation. Like it's just, it's really hard when you're feeling so crappy to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing that I just find like touch <laughs> Like the other part of my physical therapy is like, yeah, she's manipulating me and doing various things, but just like having that human touch, I think has also just been really supportive. And obviously there's many ways to get that. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I don't know that it's, it's been comforting, I think in a way that most people don't think of off the bat, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, it's more like we're going to fix your shoulder kind of thing. But yeah. Um, and on and just doctors who are validating and empathetic, like my doctor that I see here who specializes in EDS. The very first time I told her my story, she she was just like, "Wow, like that is so much," and I'm really sorry that you've had to deal with that. And I'm here to help, basically. And I just started like weeping. Yeah, it's no like, one had ever said that. To who me. knew the doctors can say that? <laughs> not like against yeah. any of their rules i it's it, it's so upsetting to me that that's not the norm yeah. that like that kind of care like that should that should absolutely be like a default behavior mm-hmm. but when you happen to find a practitioner who who acts like that and is human and kind and empathetic like i've just like grabbed hold of those people because yeah. like that in itself is so supportive yeah and healing yeah um yeah so those are the things I'm still curious about the PRP like if I went back and tried that again might I have more luck with EDS are you just bound to keep you know like it's possible that maybe just like because my connective tissue as it's getting rebuilt is you know um, getting replaced with the faulty connective tissue, maybe it's it would only ever be temporary for EDS people. Like I truly don't know what that right. was, but it did provide some relief. Yeah. Um, the things that have not been helpful, 
I mean, surgery. Right. <laughs> I guess, like, uh. Um, but that's so individual. Like I would never say right. to someone, you know, um, yeah, don't get surgery ever. That's yeah. definitely not the yeah. takeaway. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, do some extra homework and be aware that, that, you know, surgeons have a bias towards doing surgery and yeah. Mm-hmm. But again, I can't fault myself. Like I felt like I, like no one had any other new ideas for me. So yeah, you know. of course. I mean, I've, I've a plausible explanation and like potential um relief like i'm sure i would feel maybe not like a no-brainer because it's still expensive and surgery and time off and stuff but like of course you want to try it yeah um the thing that's been actually helpful for the pelvic pain so like i still have it i um I have been doing PT on and off for it. Um, but the thing that has been most helpful is actually, uh, Valium suppositories, Mm. um, which you have to get the right dose because like I, one time I got way too much and I definitely, it became sort of systemic and I got a little loopy off it, which was not the goal. Right. Keep it very localized and to chill out your vagina. basically. Hey, yeah. Yeah. Give it a little relaxation. Yeah. But I've, I've since learned that like there are types of vulvar vestibulitis that are mast cell based. And I'm really interested in this. Like people don't talk about this. I've mm-hmm. only found like one source that ever mentioned this, but the idea that it's related to like that mast cells have kind of infiltrated to a greater degree in that tissue, mm-hmm. um, which oversensitizes it and makes it, um, really susceptible to inflammation. Yeah. Um, I know that um, benzos are, will help with mast cell reactions to some extent. So like, I kind of wonder if that's actually what's happening with the Valium. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, this is all just my, you know, like yeah, yeah, all speculation. weird theories and speculations, totally. but like, like thinking about the connection between these two things, like perhaps in my case, it's a, it's a mast cell situation that, mm-hmm. um, just happened to be the first mast cell symptom to to materialize in my life right and like to be uh, a problem compared to r- rhinitis yeah. which is a runny nose which when you get it you kind of still think it's normal like it doesn't right. inhibit yeah. that much of your life it's just annoying it's not like debilitating in a major way exactly yeah yeah because i yeah i just dismiss that as like allergies everyone has this yeah, yeah totally um, yeah, and then because you mentioned like the the um, mast cell bucket and gluten, do you have you found any difference with any foods? Like, how does food relate to this? Which is always like a very loaded question. I know. Yeah, it's extra loaded for me because I practice as a non diet um, clinician, mm-hmm. and so and what that means is really it's not anti. It's not like there can be foods that exacerbate health issues like no debate about that but it's more this um idea of not restricting not purposely trying to lose weight um so I was really loath I like I wanted to like leave the food stuff to the end totally um but I have started working with a health at every size dietitian who specializes in GI stuff because that's like a major issue I've had since this all flared up again Mm -hmm. um and we found some old blood tests I'd had that actually showed 
some IgE uh, mediated responses like allergy based responses to some foods. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of working through that list now. So yeah. I just finished, I just finished my wheat elimination and I went out and had some like tasty, tasty non <laughs> place last Friday and um, got really, really sick afterwards. So it's looking like that wheat might have to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, unclear whether it's wheat or gluten or right. like exactly but like what needs to go or or if it's just complete coincidence it's like it's so hard so like I'm in the process of kind of experimenting with that and yeah. it's it's a it's a um it's a bit of a I don't even know the right word I want to swear but you can swear <laughs> every episode is explicit fuck. yeah that's the word like that was coming to mind because I it's just um I have to like my weight loss journey, which has been part like along this and my failed weight loss journey is really what I mean to say, like led to major disordered eating for me, like being on the diets, like led me to this very disordered place. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of purposely having to restrict a food for my health, um, like I'm not exactly worried that I'm, it's going to trigger unhealthy behaviors, but it just the, I feel like it causes extra grief. Yeah. Like that I now, like I just, just a few years liberated myself to the point where I'm not on diets and I can eat anything I want. And now suddenly I have to like rein it in a little bit. So I'm still, I'm still working through that emotionally. Yeah. No, I'm sure. And I feel like I, like people do talk about it, but I kind of think not as much as we should about like, okay, maybe culturally this is even optimistic but let's pretend for a second that culturally we've all agreed that like aggressive weight loss diets are probably not great which i reckon again in this optimistic world that i'm going to talk about for a second yeah even though new companies are happening all the time and weight watchers is trying to rebrand very aggressively mm-hmm. but anyway all of that aside it's like all of a sudden now there's this new generation of diets like keto and like aip and like paleo which one People absolutely do find, some people absolutely find relief with these kinds of diets. But even then, like people that I've talked to for this, for example, I'd say with the exception of gluten specifically and like people with celiac, but with the exception of gluten specifically, everybody is like, yeah, these are the principles that I try to follow, but I also have to live my life because the reality is that like it is mentally unhealthy for me to be this restrictive all of the time. And when we're making choices about do I want to experience a little bit of GI distress or a little bit of eczema, like, sure, I don't want that for my body. But at the same time, like, I can't, I can't go to that place in my head that is so disordered and so obsessive. And so like, it's so not healthy in its own way. And I think we don't, as a community are not, haven't found a way to talk about that very well yet. Yeah. When I work with clients around this, I try to, and now I have to like use my own medicine on myself. Um, it's, it's all about choice. Like you still like framing it as like, you still have the choice to eat anything you want, except maybe in the case of celiac where like, there's like major ramifications, but, Mm -hmm. um, like as long as you're willing to accept the trade off and you're just like, you know, you can make the decision is the GI distress. I know I'm going to have worth this beautiful scone. Like, and it is a completely valid answer to say yes. 
Right. Um, and, and framing it as like a choice as opposed to I have to, mm -hmm. um, or I'm a bad person if I cheat or like any of those words. Yeah. Like, or like, I don't yeah. care about myself enough. That's like a real heavy, oh. like, you know, like you're not, I don't want to be better enough. Okay. This is my own psyche coming out, obviously. Interesting. But, yeah. That but like, is really interesting. There's so much stuff in there. Okay. We, we can't fully unpack that, but I invite anybody to talk <laughs> about it on Twitter because it is. It is real. I mean, just acknowledging the mental health impact of that kind of restriction, I think, is important and mm -hmm. something that's not done enough. Yeah. 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 And and finding ways to, to mitigate those impacts, I think, is, is really important. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Um, and so it's time to wind down. I just want to check in. Is there anything that's been in your head while we've been talking or while we've been listening to while you've listened to other episodes uh, that we haven't covered today? Oh, I feel like we've been pretty thorough. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I don't really have much. I That's mean, okay. we've been all it's over. Been, it's been really useful just to connect with other people with these. And honestly, like listening to your podcast, like I've just felt so much less alone, even if like people didn't necessarily have exactly the condition that, mm -hmm. that I have. Um, just being able to yeah, just have people to relate to. Cause like none of this stuff is ever talked about, you know, it's even like the idea of like calling this a chronic illness is just something I've really struggled with. Like, am I, am I worthy of saying I have chronic pain when it's intermittent? Am I worthy of calling this a chronic illness? Um, mm -hmm. I like, feel that so, hard. <laughs> there's so much there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and being able to hear other people talk about it is, has been really supportive for me through the last few months. So, yeah. I am glad you. to hear that. Well, thank you for talking to me. Yeah, thank we all – the community is so helpful. And, yeah, we don't have to, like, play the sick Olympics all the time in order to, like, foster that. And I think that's important to remember, too. Yeah. And I saw a tweet that you shared earlier about, like, um, the – non-happy endings and I I really I feel that so much like for me it's really good not to have to have not everything and be wrapped up in this bow like I I felt like when Selma Blair for instance came out with all her MS stuff I just felt like there was so much push by the media to be like look she's she's a survivor she's like she's doing great like she's so strong and inspirational and like for me just knowing that other people are in the muck with me and we can support each other. Like to me, that's where it's at as opposed to like just putting this shiny, happy sheen on it. Yeah, totally. And like, I want everyone to find relief where they can and to improve their symptoms where they can and to have the best possible quality of life. But I think like speaking of the mental health impacts of all of this, like it's, it negatively affects my mental health. If I think that I have to get 100% better in order to live again almost in order to like count as yeah. a person like yeah that might not happen it's not negative or pessimistic I think for any of us to say that to say like this might be my baseline and I'm going to take care of myself the best I can in here and like it's not about giving up it's just about not putting that pressure on myself to like whatever meet someone else's standard of health yeah yeah, I think that comes back to the neoliberal stuff we were talking about earlier. Like, it, that just is, like if we 
if we're constantly looking ahead to the next solution, because that's what we're told we're supposed to do, then there's no time to just think about like, what would it be like if this, if this is my new, my new normal? Yeah. And can I, can I grieve that? Can I like work through everything around that? Yeah. And like, and I what will like I do? I... What will I do with myself? Cause I can, what yeah. can I do right now? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 That's something I'm very much with. Yeah. 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 Pausing, pausing and knowing that even if this is, like what it's going to be like I can I can manage somehow maybe you know even that I find myself wanting to put this like sheen on it right it's so that that yeah that drive to to make it sound like it's going to be all better is strong it is very (laughs) strong totally yeah yeah Yeah. um well thank you so much for talking to me um yeah thank you it was really fun I really enjoyed it yay Thank you for listening to episode 32 of No End in Sight. You can find Meredith on Instagram at Made on a Generous Plan and on Twitter at Generous Plan. Meredith's feed is focused entirely on fat liberation and it's just filled with beautiful graphics, quotes, and ideas. I recommend checking her out immediately. You can find this show on Instagram at no.n.in.site.pod. I'm a little slow on posts right now because I'm still behind on transcripts, but that'll pick up again once those pick up again. And then you can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at BennisB. Today, my personal feeds are mostly just videos of a turtle that I found on my back porch when I got home from various medical appointments. So it's some really hard hitting content right there. I've got at least 12 more stories to share with you right now, so make sure that you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've been enjoying the show, I would be so grateful if you could share a review on Apple Podcasts so that other people know what to expect. As usual, don't forget that I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's quiet but growing, and you'll even find a few podcast guests in the group. And finally, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. I love to cross-stitch as a way to feel productive during flares when I'm stranded in front of the television. And one of these days, I'll get some new spring and summer patterns going. I'd love it if you checked us out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.